If you ever want to be a Bible student, you need to know there are two stories back-to-back with each other where Jesus had appointments with people, and the purpose of the appointment was to show a person how to go to heaven. What makes them, in some ways, almost humorous is that they are total opposites. In John chapter 4, I hope you got to be here for the message last week. If you didn't, you can check it out online. But if, if you look at John 4, you're looking at the last person in the world you would think might have a relationship with God. She's from Samaria. That's like the very opposite of God's people. On top of that, she's a reject from her own people because she's been married and divorced five times and was sleeping with a man who would give her a bed for the night. So you can understand why we talked about her last week as the last person in the world. But if the Samaritan woman did just about everything she could do, and I don't think she did intentionally, of course, but if she, if she made her life choices in a way to blow up her life, she couldn't have done any better. But when you go into John chapter 3, which is juxtaposed clearly against John 4, you're seeing a man who did just everything right. If there was a way to do things right and to get God's approval, well, you could not have beaten Nicodemus. And so we're going to jump into John chapter 3, and we're going to talk about the winner today. And we're going to look at the story of Jesus meeting a man And we're going to discover that before this thing is all over, he's got all the issues that the woman in John 4 had. He just covers them up a lot better. You ready for this? Here we go. We're in John chapter 3, verse 1. The Bible says, there was a man named Nicodemus. Now, I was going to kid you a little bit and see if you knew what the name Nicodemus means, but you do. You may not know you know what it means, but you know what the name Nicodemus means. Names have meanings in the Bible. I've never been sure about this. I remember asking my professors when I was in college. Did they get the names and then live up to the names, or did the parents wait and see what the kid was like and then say, oh, you look like uh, Nicodemus? Let me me tell you what Nicodemus means, and again, like I say, you already know this. Um, If you're wearing Nike today, if you're wearing Nike, if you've got the swoosh on any place, or a lot of us have WSU gear on today, so if you have that and it's it's Nike made or or anything else that you have that's Nike made, then you know Nike, Nicodemus, you know the first half of his name. It just means winner or victor, winner, champion. And then Demas, the second part of the name, you know what a democracy is? Democracy is a rule of the people. So when you look at Nicodemus, you know his name. It's Nike, Nike, winner, Demas, people. It's somebody who wins over people or somebody who knows how to win people over. Some of you who are older can remember the Dale Carnegie course, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Nicodemus came with it preloaded. He is the kind of guy who knows how to win you over. A lot of you are in business, and you've got to go out and negotiate. And you know, negotiations can get testy sometimes, can't they? They can even get hostile because, after all, you're representing different, different ways of going about things, and there's different cost structures. And so you know that in a, in a negotiation, when, when, when you have this back and forth going on, you always are concerned that somebody on the other side could just get hotter in the collar and walk up and end the negotiation. Let me ask you this. Don't you have somebody on your team that you're saying, you know what, we got to take her with us? It doesn't matter who else we take when we go to negotiate, but she's got to go or he's got to go because there's always that person that knows how to keep the other people calmed down long enough to keep the deal going. And you just, you know that when somebody starts to get hard on the collar, you got somebody who is a Nicodemus, somebody who knows how to win people over. And that is his personality. I'm going to jump way ahead in the story, but I just want to prove this point. There are three instances in the Bible where we see Nicodemus. We see him at the burial of Jesus. He sort of comes out of the shadows and comes public with his faith. Along with Joseph of Arimathea, they take his body off the cross and bury it appropriately and properly. And then, of course, John 3 that we're going to be spending our time talking about today where he comes to meet Jesus at night. 
But in the middle of this, and I'm giving away what I don't want to give away, Nicodemus is also a senator. During Jesus' time on the earth, the powers that were wanted to get rid of him. And so Nicodemus was in a Senate meeting when the discussion was Jesus and how to get rid of him. And Nicodemus said this. This is in chapter 7, verse 15. He said, does our law condemn anyone first without hearing him to find out what he's doing? Do you get that feeling of who Nicodemus is? He is that supreme negotiator who knows how to appeal to people's better selves, as Lincoln talked about, better angels. Nicodemus is that person who knows how to win people over. Now, thinking again about the juxtaposition of John 3 and Nicodemus and John 4 and the Samaritan woman, last week we saw the Samaritan woman did whatever it took to avoid crowds. She will go out to get water at high noon when it's hotter than any other time because she wants to be alone. She wants to be by herself because everybody in the town knows her story. She wants to be alone. She doesn't want to be with the crowd. Nicodemus, on the other hand, creates crowds. When Nicodemus walks downtown, everybody sort of forms around him because he is a local legend. He is somebody everybody wants to be around. Um, I think about uh, a few times when my kids were small and I had the privilege of hanging with a a great leader or a celebrity sometimes that I wanted my kids to meet. I think the same thing happened with Nicodemus and the dads and little boys that would come down the street. You know, here comes Nicodemus and crowds kind of forming around, and here's a father with a son, and and the dad is saying, sir, I've been talking to my boy about what it takes to be a winner, and you're a winner. Would you mind meeting my boy for a moment and just spending, maybe saying something to my son? And you hear Nicodemus, you already know what his personality's like. Nicodemus is saying, hi, son, what's your name? My name is Jacob. What do you want to be when you grow up, Jacob? I want to be a teacher. Well, I'll tell you what, Jacob, you mind your dad, you memorize all your Bible verses, you say your prayers three or four or five times a day, and you do the right thing all the time, and you're going to grow up and be a teacher. You sort of get that picture in your head. That's Nicodemus. That's the guy everybody wants to be around. And not only is Nicodemus great at winning people over, there are a couple of characteristics that you also should know about him. In John chapter 3, the Bible tells us he is a Pharisee. Now, when we read the story of Jesus, it seems like the Pharisees are always out to get Jesus. They are the chief nemeses of Jesus. But if you had seen where they started out 300 years earlier, you would have been impressed with the Pharisees. See, the Jews had gone into captivity to several people groups, and many of them had lost their hope and lost their faith and didn't believe in God anymore. That happens to people. Just when enough bad things happen, sometimes people lose their faith. And the Pharisees were a group of people that said, wait a minute, no matter what happens to us, we still believe in God, we still believe he does miracles, and we still believe the Bible. Hey, how does it sound to you? Right now, I'm ready to hang with these guys because I'm with them. You know, we believe in God, we believe God does miracles, we believe his word is true. That was fine. Oh, but they, they, they did something at that point that made everything fall apart. They hung together as a group and said, you know what we're going to do? Because everything is falling apart, we are going to do everything right. Let's become blood brothers. Let's make a deal. We're going to do everything right. Anybody here ever start out to do that? Maybe, maybe with the best of intentions. And I think the Pharisees did have good intentions. You ever like join a religion or something or join a group and you just say, you know what, I'm going to do everything right. I'm going to keep every rule. I'm going to do everything I'm asked to do, just whatever it is. I'm going to do everything right. Well, that's a noble ambition. But what did you discover? It isn't long before we implode under the law of trying to do everything right. 
Now, one of three things is going to happen when we implode under trying to do everything right. Number one, we're either going to be honest about it and we're going to come clean, which is not what most people do. Chances are we're going to do one of two other things. Either we're going to throw it down and say, hey, it's impossible, I quit. How many of you were in a religion and you tried to do everything right and it blew up on you and said, I quit, I get out, and 20 years later, you walk into New Spring, right? (laughs) Or what's really bad, and this is far worse, and that is someone says, well, you know, I fell, I fell apart under the load of trying to do everything right, but, you know, I'm with all these other people that, th- that they're doing everything right, and so I'm going to have to, like, cover up what I'm doing wrong. And that's what happened to the Pharisees by the time Jesus came along. They decided to just cover up. Or even better yet, how many of you know there are people that when they can't keep all the guidelines, they try to change the sideline markers and the end zones? And so they just basically, they basically set the rules up to, to favor what they can do. And so by the time Jesus comes along, these Pharisees, they have all kinds of external goodness that they all do and they all maintain perfectly. Hey, can I talk to us here today? Every once in a while, someone will say, well, when do you guys get to the really deep stuff? I know I'm always talking to a church person when they ask that question. Let me tell you, I grew up in church have a degree in theology. I've been in this world all my life. Let me tell you what most Christians are talking about when they talk about the deep stuff. They're talking about the complexity, the faux complexity that you get off into to keep from having to deal with the real heart issues that are really deep. Let me tell you something. If you can love your neighbor, you're pretty deep. If you can love your enemy, you're really deep. If you can forgive the people who've hurt you, you're mega deep. See, the issue is not learning all kinds of complexities, where the ashes of the red heifer are, you know, and all that kind of stuff. That's not depth. Depth is getting this cruddy heart of ours right. And so the Pharisees, and I need to hurry. I didn't mean to spend nearly that much time there. (laughs) The Pharisees, by the time Jesus comes along, they're keeping everything right on the outside, but they're a problem on the inside. And Nicodemus is a Pharisee. But here's what's going to drive our story today. Nicodemus isn't like the guys who are covering up. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's got the outward image, but deep down inside, something's going wrong. I should also tell you that Nicodemus, according to John 3, 1, the Bible says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. This is, this is tantamount to the Senate. There are 70 Senate members. And Rome, of course, ruled the world at that time, but Rome was only primarily concerned about two things. They wanted their tax money, and they didn't want any riots. And as long as the government paid their taxes to Rome, it didn't start any trouble. Rome would pretty well let a a province govern itself. And so this Jewish senate basically ruled on all things things Jewish. When you're reading the story of Jesus' crucifixion, like we'll get into at Palm Sunday, sometimes you read about how that Jesus was before Jewish authorities and then uh, before Roman authorities. And that's, that's what's going on there. Nicodemus is a senator. But there's one more thing you should know about him. We know already he knows how to win people over. He's charismatic. He's one of the beautiful people. He's brilliant. He's religious. He's a senator. And now let's hear from Jesus himself. In Jesus 3.10, Jesus would say, you are Israel's teacher. He didn't say you're one of Israel's teachers. He said, you are the go-to guy. Nicodemus is Bible answer man in Jerusalem. If people have any questions about the Bible, they go see. If they can get an appointment with, they go see Nicodemus for the answer. Now, here's all I want to say. If what God wanted to send us was a plan to get to heaven, I think you could call it the Nicodemus plan. 
I mean, because after all, this guy seems to do everything right. If there was a single person who could have done everything right to build up his life, it was Nicodemus. Well, let me ask you a real heartfelt question, starting with me. How many of us have discovered that a well-put-together exterior can belie a turbulent heart? How many of us have figured out that we can have it all together on the outside while it's all falling apart on the inside? I want to take you back to freshman comp days, those of you who can remember your college days, or if you're in college. You remember reading a poem called Richard Corey? I do. I mean, I was an 18-year-old freshman, but I still remember reading Richard Corey by Edwin Arlington Robinson. The poem says, when it, whenever Richard Corey went downtown, we people on the pavement looked at him. He was gentleman from soul to crown, clean-favored and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed, and he was human when he talked. But still he fluttered pulses when he said good morning, and he glittered as he walked. And he was rich, yes, richer than a king, and admirably schooled in every grace. In fine, we thought he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. So only worked and waited for the light and went without the meat and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. I still remember reading the dramatic irony of that last line of the final stanza of Richard Corey. And I thought, how many people are like Richard Corey? All together on the outside, but a mess on the inside. Every week for the seven weeks that we do this series, The Appointment, because we're going to be talking about Jesus meeting with people, we're going to make three comments. Life put them there. Jesus came to meet them. Their lives are never the same again. Well, let's talk about where life put Nicodemus. Well, if you were here last week, there's no question about where life put the Samaritan woman. I mean, let's just be honest. Life put her in the gutter. But where does life put Nicodemus? When Jesus meets with Nicodemus, where, is, where, where does life put him? It puts him on a pedestal. And God forbid that life should put any of us in a gutter. But let me just be honest with you. I think sometimes it's easier to handle it when life puts you in a gutter than when it puts you on a pedestal. Who am I talking here today to? You grew up in church, and maybe you grew up doing everything right, and you were just a kid that tried everything to do, you know, to honor your parents. And you just like, you know, everybody looks up to you is like, wow, you know, she is so awesome, or he is so awesome, and life puts you on a pedal. Let me, ask, so let me ask you a question. How do you walk that backward? When, when life puts you in a place where people look up to you, how do you step off the pedestal and say, wait a minute, I got some issues I got to deal with? And just how do you do that? And who do you go to? Because after all, we have this fear. Let me just, this is why it's so difficult to walk it backwards. We have this fear. Well, if I step off the pedestal, people may think I'm a fraud. They may think I'm a deceitful person. Let me, I'm going to tell you this again in another series. We hear many times people talk about hypocrites in the church. Well, let's be sure we know what we're talking about when we talk about hypocrites in the church. Because there are hypocrites in the church. Not at New Spring, I don't think. Really, I don't. I just, it's not our style. Now listen, if when you talk about people in church, if you're talking pe about people who have a standard that they don't live completely up to, that's not a hypocrite. That's every one of us. I mean, every one of us, none of, nobody here lives up to the standard of righteousness if we believe in God. There's a gap. There's, there's a big tension between the person we would love to be and the person that we really are. That's not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is somebody who says there is no gap, that has a gap and says there isn't one. That's a hypocrite. So I'm asking, what do you do when you're Nicodemus? Because everybody thinks he's this image, and yet Nicodemus has got a heart that's got nagging doubt. I mean, he's the answer man, and he's got questions he can't get answers for. Well, thankfully, unlike Richard Corey, who went home one warm night and put a bullet through his head, Nicodemus, on the other hand, one warm April night, 
waits till the streets are absolutely empty except for the wind that's breezing down through the streets of Jerusalem. And he walks the empty streets, carefully making sure everybody's in for the night. And he's headed for a particular house that has an upstairs apartment with a stairway that leads up the house on the side so that he won't have to bother the people inside the house. He has somebody he wants to see in that upstairs apartment that he thinks might have the answers for him. And that person, as you know, is Jesus. Now, can you get this in your mind? I shared with you last week. I hope God keeps this all on video because I want to see it when I get to heaven. And, <laughs> you know, I told you last week, I said, wouldn't it be cool to see on video that moment where the Samaritan woman walks into Jesus' space? You know, his lanky frame, his lanky frame draped over the side of the well. She's walking up there in the hopes that she can just get her water without bothering him, getting his attention. I want to see that moment where she comes into his space and he says, hey, could I have a drink? Well, I want to see this one, too. Because I want to see Nicodemus climb the stairs, look over his shoulder, see him, everybody's looking. Let me just say this. He didn't walk up there and go, no. I think it was more like this. Now, this is what I want to see. You get this in your mind? Here's Jesus, early 30s. Carpenter. Open the door, and there before him stands the local legend. Now, if Jesus were like many of us, who are like kind of celebrity odd, Jesus would have said, wow, can you believe this? Nicodemus coming to my house. How cool is this, sir? Can I get your autograph? But Jesus is no normal 30-something. He is the son of God. He is the one who wrote the codes for DNA. He is the one, according to John 1, nothing was created without him being created. So he's pretty significant. And Nicodemus really may be impressive to the rest of the community. He doesn't impress Jesus. Now, what I want to see, and I promise you, I have a weird sense of humor, and I promise you I do. What I want to see is I want to see how long it took for somebody to say something. Because Jesus is, Nicodemus is waiting for Jesus there to a younger man to speak to the older and appropriate protocols. Jesus is standing there with his arms folded or maybe his hands in his pockets. And Nicodemus is standing here. He doesn't know what to say. And then finally Nicodemus does what he does. What, is, what does his name mean? He's the person who wins people over. So what's he going to try to do? Win Jesus over. Let's read. Rabbi. We know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. Oh, he just handed Jesus an olive branch. I assure you, that's not what they were saying about Jesus down at the Senate. And so Nicodemus walks in and he makes this overture because he wins people over. He's going to win Jesus over. And he says to him, sir, rabbi, teacher, I'm going to even give you a term of respect. Rabbi, we know that you came from God. I don't question your miracles. We know you do miracles, and God has to be with you in order to do them. That's Jesus' opportunity to say, well, Nicodemus, I sure appreciate you saying that. Man, not everybody says that, you know, especially people that live where you live, and you're part of town, so thank you so much for saying that. Why don't you, why don't you come on and make you a cup of coffee? I got the Keurig over here. <laughs> and you see this, Nicodemus is like, oh, I've said something really nice. Now you say something back nice to me. And then Jesus, and this just blows him away. And Jesus, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Boom. So much for preliminaries. I mean, Nicodemus, I know you came from God. Jesus, hey, you're going to have to be born again. You're going to have to start life over. Four verses later, Jesus will say, you must, this is John 3, 7, you must be born again. Now, I don't know if we've picked up on what's going on here because this, our culture is a little different. Let me see if this helps. The Pharisees had this belief that you, you do everything right. And then there's this one thing 
you get this one God assignment that puts you over the top. And so, you know, for instance, if you've studied the Bible, you know the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what one thing, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? That was the Pharisee's question. We're doing everything right. What's the one thing that puts us over the top? So this is the thing you need to understand. Nicodemus came to see Jesus in order to tweak. He's got this big God resume under his arm. All the scriptures he's memorized, all the churches he's, I mean, synagogues he's gone to, all the prayers he's prayed, all the good things he's done, the keeping of the law. Nicodemus got this huge bulging, I mean, not really, but you sort of get the idea. This huge bulging resume of why God should let him into heaven. So Nicodemus is hoping that he can go talk to this young teacher and this teacher can like put him over the top. Just a tweak. <laughs> Yet, Jesus said, you got to start from scratch. You have to be born again. Just put your resume down, Nicodemus. It's not going to get you anywhere. Just put it down. Shred it. Put it in the shredder over there. You have to be born again. Is there anybody who came to church like that here today? You're a good person. We would all agree with that. We would all like to have you for a next-door neighbor. I'm sure everybody would have liked their son to grow up like Nicodemus. Maybe everybody would like for their daughter to be like you. Everybody would like for their son to be like you. And maybe you walked in today and you thought, well, I'm just almost to heaven. I'm just going to come in today and find out what's the last thing I need to do. You know, I spend my life in the Bible, and I, I tell you, there's something I find very interesting. Not that often does God tell us there's something we absolutely must do. And a lot of times we're told what we should do or what's wisdom, like in the you know, series we did in January, going pro. That's what you should do. But Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. In fact, he spelled it out in John 3. He said, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Think about those four things. No one can even see into the kingdom unless he is born again. Boy, must is a strong word. If you're in college, you know what it means to have someone say, you must take this course in order to graduate. All of us know what it's like as Americans to have the federal government say, you must pay these taxes or you go to jail. Or if you've got something wrong with you physically, you must have this treatment in order to live. Must is something you can't negotiate with. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, this isn't something, I'm not advocating this, I'm not suggesting this, I'm not telling you to take this into consideration, I'm telling you, Nicodemus, if you want to get into heaven, you must start over but here's where it gets really delightful for me because I think about this. Isn't it like our Lord to tell us the one thing we must do is what we crave more than anything else? I mean, isn't it true that what, I don't know about you, it's sure true for me, what I crave more than anything else is a new start. It's hard for me to tweak because I've screwed so much stuff up in the 57 years I've lived. What a blessed thought to me that God is saying, hey, Mark, you know what you have to do? You have to do the one thing you want to do more than anything else. You've got to start over. I promise you, you go back over to John 4 and you look at Jesus' story to the Samaritan woman. He doesn't tell her she has to start over. Hey, when you've been married five times, divorced five times, sleeping with any man who will give you a bed, you don't have to know that you must start over. All you need to know is that you can start over. Man, Jesus tells her she can start over and when she leaves her water pot and runs in the sidecar and says, come see this guy. You know who has to hear you must be born again? People like me who grew up in church. Hey, I'm a pastor's kid. 
I started going to church before the meter of my memory started running. I don't even know the first time I ever heard the gospel. I mean, I've been memorizing scripture ever since my, my mouth would work. I mean, I've been in church almost every week of my life. I've heard, sermon, I've heard countless sermons, thousands of sermons. See, the thing about it is, if you grew up in religion, maybe without even wishing to or wanting to, you can almost get the idea that life has put you on third base in scoring position. And all you need is somebody to sacrifice fly to get you in. It's not true. See, here's the thing. I'm just as broken as the atheist out there who's never been in church one day in his life. I still have the same flaws and the same problems, and i got to start over just like he's got to start over. And that's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, who walked in with this bulging religious portfolio. Jesus said, you must be born again. I'm so thankful that Nicodemus said, how? Now, work with me for a moment. You know, the term born again is part of our nomenclature as Americans. Even if you weren't religious, it got entered, and all of, most of you all are too young to remember this, but in the Dem- Democratic presidential um, race in 76, uh, the eventual president, Jimmy Carter, was asked about his life, and he said that he was a born-again Christian. And that was sort of the first time it ever became part of the, the whole national dialogue. And so even if a person wasn't a person of faith, if I use the term born again, you sort of know right up front I'm talking about something spiritual. We've had 2,000 years to talk about Jesus' comment. Nicodemus had no idea what Jesus was talking about. He's not, he doesn't even know about Jimmy Carter. He doesn't know about America. He doesn't know about us. He's just coming there to see Jesus. Saying, and Jesus said, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is saying, I don't know how I can do that. For one thing, I'm an old man. And I can't go back into my mother's body and be born again. And I just don't see how that can happen. Now, in the few moments that we have left, I want to share with you, Jesus answers him three ways. And I think it's because Jesus knew Nicodemus need to know, and he knew that millions of us would look at these words. Jesus is going to tell Nicodemus, first of all, what he's talking about. Number two, he's going to tell him what it's like to be born again. And most importantly, he's going to give him the basis for being born again. You and I are about to enter about the most important 14 minutes we'll ever spend together in this room because we're going to talk about the one thing that Jesus said, no matter what else we, might, what we do, we must do this. First of all, Jesus is going to tell him what he means because Nicodemus is lost. I mean, does this mean i got to find some way to be physically born again? That's creepy. And so Jesus wants him to know he's not talking about that. He said in verse 5, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Now, through the years, Christians have really screwed this verse up. So I want you to know clearly what it's talking about. Some people look at the water there and say, that means baptism. Hey, baptism is a wonderful thing. But you need to know this. Baptism is always after you've been born again. Somebody can say, well, Mark, my parents were baptized for me. Well, they they meant well, but that was their faith. Biblical baptism, everybody in the Bible who's baptized is always baptized after they put faith and trust in Christ. Baptism is like a wedding ring. You wouldn't wear a wedding ring before you got married. That'd be cheesy. I tried on. But a wedding ring is a tangible, visible symbol of an, uh, of an internal change, of a commitment. And so when, when a person is baptized, they're not baptized in order to be saved. They are baptized because they have been born again. 
And they're just saying, I want everybody to know that I'm identifying with Jesus Christ. That's why when you see someone baptize the Lord under the water and brought up out of the water, showing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They're just saying, I want everybody to know I'm, I'm, I'm affiliated with him. And if you've been born again and you've never taken that step, you might want to think about it. Just as your love for Christ to go public with your faith. But Jesus isn't talking about baptism here. Wichita water can't wash anybody's sins away. Now, there are those, in the, and I don't have any problem with this. It's not what Jesus was talking about, but it's not dangerous, I guess. There are those who say, oh, well, the, the, oftentimes the Bible is referred to as the water of the word. So consequently, when Jesus said you must be born of water and the spirit, he's talking about you must be born of the word of God and the spirit of God. Oh, it doesn't hurt anything, but that isn't what Jesus is talking about in a million years. You know, if you let the Bible, if you let the Bible speak for itself, it will eventually explain itself. And so all we need to go is to do is go into verse 6. And look at what Jesus said. You've got to be born of water and spirit. Verse 5, verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh. That's your first birth. Spirit gives birth to spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. That's the water birth. Spirit gives birth to spirit. Spirit birth. Now, we're a lot more sophisticated about medical terms today. I don't think anybody uses this term anymore, but I know back in my day when my kids got, when they were born, there was one line Mary Alice could tell me that would cause us to race to the hospital. She would say, my my water broke, yeah. That's what Jesus is talking about. Look, Nicodemus, you have to be born a second time. You have to be born the first time. You have to be born physical birth, and you have to be born spiritually, spiritual birth. So Jesus is talking about not the birth of your physical person, but the birth of who you are spiritually. And then Jesus explains to him how it works. He said, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. Just like that, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You know, my prayer this weekend is that many people will experience a new birth. And if, let's just say one of those people is you. You, you, don't, you can't look back on your life and understand all the twists and turns that God put in your life to bring you to this moment. Just like the wind, you don't know where, it, where its origin is. You can look back on your life and there's no way in the world that you could understand all the calculus that God has employed to bring you to the moment of accepting Christ. And if you accept him today, you have no idea where he's going to take you tomorrow and the rest of your life. Just like the wind, you don't know where the ultimate destination is. But here's the thing. While the wind is blowing past you, you know you can feel its effect, and so it is with God. You may not understand everything that God has done to bring you to this moment, and you don't know all the wonderful places he's going to take you in the future. But if you invite Jesus Christ into your life, you will see his effect in what he does. And finally, the basis how does a person become born again? Let's read, because Jesus is going to explain it to Nicodemus. And for all of you who are parents, who, who find like three or four ways to say the same thing to your kid to make sure they don't miss it, notice how Jesus does this with Nicodemus. Because Jesus is going to like emphasize something over and over. He's going to say it different ways. He's going to put different arrangements in it. But he's just determined that Nicodemus does not miss how to become born again. You ready? Here we go. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So in other words, Jesus is saying, you're not going to find this on your own. I came to bring this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now, there are six facts in there if you want to be sure that you've been born again. And I got to tell you, if I ever have a doubt about where I stand with God, 
I go right back to this chapter, and I look at these six statements. And they're like a geometric proof. They're going to build one upon the other. You ready for this? Here's number one. God sent his son into the world. Guys, if you ask me how I know I'm going to heaven, I know I'm going to heaven. Listen, because God sent his son into the world. There is nothing about me, pro or con, that has anything to do with whether I'm going to heaven or not. How many times have I talked to somebody and said, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? Yes. How do you know that? I'm a pretty good person. Scratch that. Let it go. The only way any of us is going to go to heaven is because God sent his son into the world. If a person could go to heaven on his own, we can't catch up to Nicodemus. God sent his son into the world. It's nothing about who I am good. It's nothing about what I've done bad. God sent his son into the world. Number two, everybody take a deep breath and let it out on this one. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Aren't you glad for that? He could have. He could have said, hey, Jesus, go to the world, find out who's naughty, who's nice. I'm dead. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. Number three, the world was condemned already. He didn't send his son to the world to condemn us. He sent us because we were condemned. Oh, my word. How many times have I had somebody ask me, I just, you know, I think you Christians are just so awful because you say unless you believe in Jesus, you can't go to heaven. How do you do with a question that's set up wrong? You understand Jesus didn't come in to condemn us. The person doesn't go to hell because they refuse to believe in Jesus. We're on the way already. We're already condemned. Look at it this way. If a person was sitting on death row and the governor gave this person a full and free pardon, allowing this person to go free, the person still has to accept a pardon. Suppose that person should say, I think it's unfair of the governor to demand that I accept a pardon from him in order to go free. I just don't like the governor. Didn't even vote for him. I just don't think he's right. I mean, who should demand that I have to accept his pardon in order to go free? You want to say to him, hey, you're on death row already. Governor didn't put you on death row. You put yourself on death row. The governor is offering you a way out. If I were you, I would take the way. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He made a, a way out. And I could be talking to somebody here today and you say, well, I just refuse to accept Jesus because I, I just think God should put it on a different basis. Let me ask you an honest, heartfelt, loving question. After God has put his son on a cross to suffer for six excruciating hours to make a way for you and me to get out of this life unconditionally, if we flip him off on the way out the door because we don't like the way he's done things, what do you think is going to happen to us? Number four, God sent his one and only son into the world to save us because he loved us. And number five, I was talking to Stephen yesterday and I said, I think my favorite line out of John 3 is John three fourteen. Even more so than John 3, 16. Because it says, as Moses lifted up the servant of the snake in the wilderness, even so must Jesus be lifted up that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You know what throws me sometimes? When I think about how God could save me, I imagine myself among you. 
And so many of you guys are so much better than I am. And I wonder, can God really save me? As flawed as I am. The story of Moses in the wilderness is in Numbers 21. And people of Israel are always complaining against Moses. And one time they just kind of pushed God too far. And God did the one thing that would really get my attention. He sent snakes. There are two kinds of snakes. There are those that will hurt you and those that make you hurt yourself. And, and, and these are the kind that will hurt you, you know. Dozens of these vipers, you know, in the desert. And people just dropping like flies. And, and people go to Moses and say, well, it really probably was not a good idea for us to rip you and God. We're sorry. And so Moses goes to God and says, what do I do? And God is so interesting in the way he does things. He just said, well, take a pole, put a brass snake around the pole, walk through the camp, and anybody who looks upon the snake will be healed. Now, that, that sounds crazy, but if you're in medicine, that's still your symbol. And so Moses walks through the camp. Now, let me tell you why this is special to me. You know what? People in that camp were in all kinds of stages of doing right and doing wrong. Man, there were people that were really great people, and they looked at the snake, and they were healed. And there are people like me that are pretty cruddy and looked at the snake, and they were still healed. That's what I understand what Jesus was trying to tell Moses. He said, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him. Some of you that are on third base and scoring positions, some of the rest of us who life is put in the gutter, all kinds of people. It doesn't matter where you've been. doesn't matter what you've done. The important thing is that Jesus is lifted up and the blood that flowed out of his body was a currency that paid for your sins. And now, let me go to the sixth thing. You know what I find interesting about the thousands of people who attend New Spring? Many of you don't come with religious backgrounds. And many of you have been out of church for a long time. Maybe you threw it down when you were a kid. The weird thing about it is you guys seem to have the advantage on us. I mean, you find out that Jesus loves you and he died to save you and you just need to believe on him and you guys are off to the races. I'll tell you what scares me more than anything. What scares me more than anything is the people who grew up in church who've heard 100 sermons on John 3 and you're right up with me with everything we've just talked about and you choke right here. And you've choked and choked and choked. And unless something happens, you're going to go into eternity having heard hundreds of sermons. <laughs> Had it happen last night. I mean, the questions are always asked in a sort of strange way. Like, well, it can't just be believe. It's got to be something else. Believe is too simple. Now, how many times did Jesus say that to Nicodemus? But it can't be believed. You've got, you got to believe and then you've got to like live it. Or you've got to believe and you've got to be baptized. Or you've got to believe and you've got to like quit doing all the things wrong. Now, Jesus either meant believe or he didn't meant believe. You know, believe basically is have something to, you know, have it, hear a message, to agree with it, and to rest on it. That's what it means to believe. And Jesus is saying, look, I have to be lifted up on a cross. And whoever, just like the people that looked at Moses, in the, Moses' snake in the wilderness, whoever will believe in me will not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever will believe. Now, here's the thing. That, see, here's the thing. You know, I, I, all my life I've heard, oh, it cannot be so simple as to believe. You and I just, we, we struggle to understand something. When Jesus said to Nicodemus, you have to believe, the believing part was not new. Because whatever, whatever your viewpoint is about what happens after death, it's based on belief. 
If you say, well, I think you have to be a good person, that's what you believe. That's your position. You bought that position. If you're here today and say, I don't think there is any life after death. You bought that position. You own it. You believe it. So believing is not what's new. It's like taking that belief and aiming it toward Jesus and saying, here's the thing. Here's the biggest thing I'll say all day. When it comes to going to heaven, I bring nothing. Whether a person is the Samaritan woman, five times married, five times divorced, sleeping with any man who will give her a bed, or you're Mr. Nicodemus who does everything pretty much right, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. You and I don't bring anything. We have to understand that any good that we could possibly do, any wrong we could possibly stop doing, would be like going into Jesus' banquet in heaven and bringing a Tupperware of cold, stale pork and beans and saying, God, you have to have this. God says, get that out of here. There's only one way to go to heaven, and that is Jesus came into our world because God loves us, and he died for our sins, and his blood paid for our wrongdoing. And anyone who will look up by faith to Jesus Christ and say, I have no hope other than Jesus, I trust Jesus, then God births you and brings you alive spiritually. That's the new birth. That's what Nicodemus had to have. I don't know how this happened. I know it did. You know, Nicodemus, I think, kind of like hung in the background. I don't know exactly what happened after this exchange. But I do know that when Jesus died, his body was hanging on the cross because the Romans liked to make an example out of people. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus went to Pilate and they said, we want to take his body down and bury him. And I see Senator Nicodemus take the claw part of the hammer and pull the nails out of Jesus' hand. I wonder if his, night, if his mind went back to the night where Jesus said, unless, like Moses was in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes... Maybe I'm wrong, but I think I hear him as he pulls the nails out of the hands of Jesus' body say, I believe. I believe. God isn't asking you to be perfect. God even isn't even asking you to be good because you can't be. He's asking you to put your trust in Jesus. And if you haven't done that, I want to give you a chance to do it. I pray so many weekends at New Spring, but I just don't know that there's ever a more important weekend because it could be that you're here today. You may have been in church all your life, but it just clicked for you. You just realize, I bring nothing. I bring nothing. See, that's what causes us our doubt is we, like, we come to Jesus and we think, oh, but I did this. But see, here's the thing. You don't bring anything. You don't bring anything. He brings it all. I'm going to pray a prayer with you, and these aren't magic words, but if you want to pray it with me, you can do it. Let's pray together. Dear God, I am a sinner. I can't save myself. But I believe Jesus died for me. I believe his blood paid for my sins. I believe he arose in the grave. Please forgive me. Make me your child. I trust Jesus alone. I understand I bring nothing, only Jesus. Give me the power to follow him in Jesus' name. Amen. If you just prayed here to receive Christ, 
please do something. When you, when you came in, you got something that looks like this, and you can check a box that says, I pray with Mark, and then bring it, if you will, back to guest services. There's a big one back there in the lobby and a little one back. I have a gift I want to give you. There's a DVD and, honestly, a book that I wrote at a time of doubt in my life, just w- wondering, going through hard times in my life and trying to figure out where God was, and I went back to what I knew for sure, which is assurance of salvation. Could I just share this book with you and the DVD and a coupon for a new Bible? All you got to do is come back to guest services, either back in the lobby or back by the coffee shop. Say, I pray with Mark, and that's all you need to do. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next weekend. God bless.